this verse gives you an answer to be sure how you can be right with God. And there's no more important question for you for your eternal existence. You get roughly 85 years on earth, if that. Millions and millions and millions and millions of years into affinity that never end in eternity. You need to know the answer to that question. How can you be right with God? So now that I've raised the stakes as much as you possibly could, probably, I'm going to read this text in Genesis 15, and you be looking for the verse that I'm perhaps referencing. Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half and when birds of prey came down on the caucuses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, a dreadful and dark, great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euph river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Pe Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. This chapter begins with Abram being afraid. You see this because of what the Lord tells him in verse 1, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Now, this text doesn't tell us exactly why Abram is afraid. Perhaps he's fearful of retribution from foreign kings that he has just defeated. Maybe he 
is fearful that God has forgotten him. Maybe he's fearful that he will not have children. What he fears isn't as important as what is calming to his soul. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward, your reward will be very great. In verse 2 and 3, Abram begins wondering. He says, but God, how will my reward be great? He says, I don't even have a son. Right now, my heir is a boy that's not even in my blood family. And by the way, remember, I'm old. I'm running out of time. How is this possible? And what does God do? He comforts him with the promise, verse 4 and 5. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. He says, Abram, Eliezer will not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. A real son, a flesh and blood son after your offspring. And because, of, because you will have a son, your offspring will be like, well, Abram, just look up at the sky and look at all the stars. Go ahead and count them if you can. Abram, your offspring will be like them. And at this point, Abram has a decision, does he not? He's old. It hasn't happened anything yet, really, about the promise. He's wondering, looking at the stars. My offspring is going to be this many. And he has the decision. And the decision is, will he believe God? Will he trust what he says? And the alternative is, of course, to look around and say, you know what, God, it's been almost 25 years since you brought me out of her. And I'm almost 100 years old. I don't have an offspring. I don't have a land. I don't have a promised inheritance. And now you want to promise me this again? You know, I don't see how this is going to work. This seems impossible. All the, circumstance, all the circumstances suggest differently. Abram doesn't say that. Instead, God says, Abram, your offspring will be like the stars of the sky, even though you're old and even though you don't see and don't understand, all the circumstances suggest differently, it's going to happen. Trust me. Trust me. And look at verse 6. This is one of the pillars of the Bible. And he believed the Lord. That's it. He believed the Lord. Even though he didn't understand, even though he didn't see, even though it seemed impossible, listen, this is one of the pillars of the Bible because all of you know of your own circumstances when you don't see and you don't understand and all the circumstances suggest differently and you're in a decision point, point right then and there when you make the decision of, am I going to trust him? Am I going to believe him? And Abram did, and look what was the result, verse 6. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. We're going to spend the majority of our time on that verse. I will be so bold as to say that the rest of the Bible is built on the reality of belief leading to righteousness. 
Here we have two massive themes of the Bible, belief and righteousness. Let's start first with righteousness. Suppose with me that you are standing in front of a judge. You've done something that puts you in a courthouse and you're standing in front of the judge and the judge says, sir or ma'am, I'm trying to figure out what your verdict will be and I have a question for you to help me decide. Are you a righteous person? What would you say? Many people would perhaps say something like, well, I try to be. I I, I try to do good. I I try to live right. I try to respect my neighbors and I, I try to do good to others when I can. I, I don't really, I don't try to hurt people. I, I try to keep the law. I try to work hard at my job and I try to be a respectable citizen. I mean, judge, I, I think I'm righteous. I try to be. Now let's say in that moment, as you're standing before the judge, you hear the back door open and he brings in another person and you turn around and it's Hitler. Yeah, exactly. You you would be thinking, well, now I know I'm righteous. Compared to him, I mean, I haven't murdered people like him. And I haven't harbored hate in my heart like him. I haven't imprisoned thousands upon thousands of people like him and tortured and, 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 and hated people with racist thoughts and motives like him. Compared to Hitler, Judge, I'm absolutely righteous. But let's say the judge brings in one more person. You hear the door click behind you and you turn around and it's Jesus. And now Jesus is standing beside you. And all of a sudden you go to the other end of the spectrum because now you think, I don't stand a chance. Compared to him, he's never sinned one time. He's never told a lie. He's never had a bad motive. He's never gotten sinfully angry at someone. He's, he's never had road rage. Like he's, he's perfect. He's always loved people as we should. He's always patient and kind. Compared to him, I don't stand a chance. And the judge says, which of you is righteous? See, here's the thing. When you stand before God one day, he will not compare you to the worst. He will compare you to the best. He will examine you according to his perfection and his holiness and his sinlessness and his purity. And he will look at you and ask, how do you measure up? How will you measure up? How do you compare with the righteousness of God? Just let that sit on you for a moment. How do you compare to the perfect, holy righteousness of God? If the judge, bring God the judge brings you in according to his holy standard of perfection, which he will, what will your verdict be? 
And Psalm 5, 4 says this, for you, God, are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Have you ever done anything evil? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever been boastful? Have you ever been deceitful? God says, such people cannot dwell with me. Why? Because God doesn't compare you to the worst. He examines you according to his holiness. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said it, and he meant for people to feel like, what chance is there then? Which of you would be ready to take your resume of your life and your works and what you've done, which of you would be ready to take that resume and put it before God today? Romans 3.10 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks God. They have all turned aside, he says. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. If we had righteousness, we would get to live in the kingdom. That's the point. But we don't have it, and that's why we get paid death, eternal separation from God, because God cannot dwell with sinners. Listen, this is really bad news. This is not news that makes us feel good. This is the worst of news, that that there's a God who's holy and perfect, and then there's us people bound in our sin, chained in our captivity, in our rebellion against him. And the bad news is, is that we're gonna stand before him and he's gonna condemn us in our sin. That is the worst of the news. And this is the day that the world doesn't think will come. This is the day that, if we're honest, we like to just kind of gloss over And we tell people of God's love for them, that they are his creatures and that he loves them. That's absolutely true. But we also need to tell them of God's disposition toward them as sinners. Psalm 5, 4, you hate all evildoers. Romans 1, 18, for the wrath. That's a good word that we don't hear often. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, even the smallest unrighteousness, the, the, the whole wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness of men. Now, who stands a chance? This is why I told you the most important question you could ever ask is, how can I be right with this holy God? And that question is so important because the Bible teaches over and over that no one is right with him. So the question is, how can I get right with him? And answering that question 
is one of the primary reasons the Bible exists. Now, now that I've said all of that, I hope you feel some sort of weight of, my goodness, who has a chance? All of that makes Genesis 15, 6 so surprising. And this is what the gospel does. It's meant to come to us as a breath of fresh air. It is meant to come to us in our, not our state of neutrality. It's meant to come to us in our state of desperation and give us salvation. This is why Genesis 15, 6 is so surprising. In light of God's holiness and his righteousness and in light of our unholiness and our unrighteousness, we may be tempted to think, how can I get right with God? Well, doggone it, I just gotta shape up. I gotta, I gotta do better. I gotta start I gotta living right. I gotta, I gotta turn my life around. I gotta do good and do more and do enough and I, I gotta earn it. When I stand before God one day, I got to make sure my good outweighs my bad. We might be tempted to think that. You might be tempted to think that. How many times have I asked someone, why do you think God would let you into heaven? Well, I've tried to be a good person. Friends, that is a condemning answer. The answer is not do more, do better, shape up, earn it. That's the belief of every other religion of the world. Let your, let your good outweigh your bad. Friends, Christianity is not an earnest religion. This is why it comes to us as a breath of fresh air. This is why Genesis 15, 6 is so surprising. What did Abram do? Look at Genesis 15, 6. What did he do? I'll read it and you say it. And he, what? Believed. He believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's it. He believed. Is that not good news? We have the righteousness theme of which we're all condemned because we don't have it. And here's the second great theme, belief. What did Abram believe? He believed the Lord's promise. He trusted what he said, even when he couldn't see and he didn't understand and all the circumstances said differently. Abram looked at God and he said, okay, literally Yahweh, I will trust you. Trust that you're true to your word. Trust that you're faithful to your promise. Trust with everything in me, all my hope, all my security, everything I have, I'm putting in your basket. And I'm trusting you. And brothers and sisters, don't miss the shocking result. What happened when Abram believed? And he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. Belief leading to righteousness. I hope that is a breath of fresh air to someone here this morning. Why is that so significant? Why is it so important? Because for 15 chapters in Genesis, 
We've seen nothing but the wickedness of man, the evilness and the judgment of God that has come upon man. And every generation, even till today, witnesses the evilness of man and God's judgment upon man. You can feel it around us all a day. You can see it. And scripture is clear that the evil cannot dwell with God and that God will punish the unrighteousness, the unrighteous. And it causes all of us to kind of squirm in our seats because we know we are the unrighteous. We know what we have thought. We know what we have said. We know what we have done. Let me ask you a question. Which one of you would want to come up here and tell everyone the worst thing you've ever done? No one. But yet we know it in our heart and we know that God sees it. And this is the problem that all mankind faces, that one day I'm gonna stand before God and he's gonna look for my righteousness and there will be none. And Genesis 15, 6 is so important because it introduces for us a category about God. And you need to know this about God. Dare I say, if you don't hear anything else, hear me say this. There is a God who is willing to give out righteousness to people who have none. He just gives it out. You know, I'm gonna stand before him one day and he's gonna look for my righteousness and I don't have any and I'm gonna be dead meat. It's like God will say, don't come here without any righteousness. If you come here without righteousness, you will be condemned for all eternity. And I don't have any. And yet God says, I'll give you what you don't have. And I'll let you, be, I'll let you have it as your own. Abram believed and he counted it to him as righteousness. You see that in the text? What does it mean he counted it to him as righteousness? In other words, it was given to him. It was accredited to his account. There was a righteousness outside of, of, of Abram that was given to Abram to be his own. It's like he, he went to bed and his righteousness tank was empty. He woke up and it was full. And how did it happen? God counted it to him. He gave it to him. This is an, what is called an alien righteousness. Why? Because it's a righteousness that's out of this world. It's, it's out of ourselves. It's, it's not owing to anything we've done or anything that we could earn. It's a alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that is outside of us that comes to us to be our own. It's counted on our behalf. Friends, this is the best news in the world that God is willing to give out righteousness to people who have none, but who desperately need it. Now remember, how did Abram receive this righteousness? He believed. Now this is a crucial point. Please do not miss this point. Abram's belief was not his righteousness in and of itself. Abram did not become righteous in and of himself because he believed. Remember, it was a righteousness that was counted to him, was given to him. That's not his own. That was accredited to him. It was imputed to him because he believed. How beautifully profound yet simple is that word throughout all the Bible. Believe. 
Many of you learned your very first Bible verse as a child, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 6, 47, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. John 6, 28, they asked him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth as Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Friends, listen, the Bible has a lot of complicated parts to it. This is not one of them. If you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would be saved. Believe that his death paid the penalty for your sins. Believe that his resurrection secured eternal life for you. Believe that his perfect life of righteousness is accredited to your account. Believe that his words are true. Believe that he's king over all. Believe that he's more treasurable than anything this life could give. Believe that he's Lord over all, including your life, including every second, including every point of submission for you to give to him by believing the righteousness that God has is then given to you the righteousness of Jesus placed in your account and he takes all of your sin and he pays for it there's no debt you believe this whatever Whatever you feel guilty about, all the sin you committed, all the, the horrible things that you can think of in your mind, I've done this, I've done this, and I feel so much shame about it. Do you believe that Jesus paid for it on the cross and that when you stand in front of God one day as you're trusting in him, God will not look at that unrighteousness. He will look at the righteousness of Jesus on your behalf. Do you believe that? Jesus says, if you do, you'll be saved forever. That's how you can stand before God. Not, I've tried to do good, I've tried to be a good person, I've tried anything, I, I, I. No, he did it, and I trust it. Abram believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. Now, someone may be thinking, but isn't the very act of Abram choosing to believe an act of righteousness in and of itself? Like, isn't, yes, God comes and Abram has a decision to make and he decides to believe the Lord. Isn't that very decision, I mean, that's the right thing to do. Isn't that an act of righteousness? That is a very good question. That is a really good question. I hope some of you are wondering that. Here's how the Bible would answer that question. Abram's decision to believe was not a work of righteousness in and of himself because his belief was part of the gift of God. You hear Paul write in, in 1 Timothy 1.14, when the grace of the Lord overflowed to me, it came with the faith and the love in Jesus Christ. Even the belief that you have 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in him today, even that belief is part of the very gift that he gives you. And therefore, no one has room to boast. Now, what was Abram believing? How was Abram given a righteousness before Jesus even walked on the earth? You ever wonder that? Like Old Testament saints before Jesus came and died on the cross, like what were they believing? One reason I say Genesis 15, 6 is such a pillar of the Bible is because so much of the rest of the Bible is built upon it. If you turn with me quickly to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, verse 1. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this. What was Abram believing? What were Old Testament saints believing? Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? He's like, what about Abraham? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul says, think about Abram. You wanna know how it worked for him? How he got righteousness, it wasn't because of his own work that he was justified, but because of his faith, his belief. In Galatians, Paul writes to another church there, he's reminding the church there uh, that it's Jesus's work that saves, not anyone's work. And in doing so, he uses Abram as an example. Again, Genesis 15, six comes up in Galatians 3, six. He says, just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Again, it was his faith that justified. See, Genesis 15, six is introducing for us a critical truth that God is willing to give out righteousness to people who have none if they'll trust in him for salvation. And the Old Testament saints were looking to the cross forward in faith of where God would bring ultimate salvation. And we as New Testament saints look back at the cross of where God has completed the work in Christ. Old and New Testament saints justified alike by faith alone, not by works or merits, but by trusting in God to save them alone. It's why all the Old Testament shows the one storyline of people constantly looking for the Messiah. It's why in the New Testament records the Messiah's work, people looking to God to provide a righteousness outside of themselves. The point of belief in the scriptures is this. It's a, a doorway. It's a, it's a channel to the righteousness of God. You can look at your own life and I hope you know that you can't do enough. You can't earn enough. You can't do better enough. You can't shape up enough to be righteous before God. What can you do through the quickening work of the Holy Spirit 
you can believe. You can look at Jesus and say, I trust that man and I trust what he did for me. You say, is it really that simple? Listen to the free offer of the gospel. Yes, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Do you believe? It's what separates Christianity from all the other religions of the world. It's not about what you can do. It's about what Jesus has done. And do you trust it? Now, I've spent a lot of time on that one verse, and that was intentional because the whole Bible spends a lot of time on that theme, righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The rest of the chapter in Genesis 15, I'm gonna touch on very briefly. We'll come more to it as we talk about the covenant God has here in the next few weeks in Genesis. But the rest of Genesis 15 may seem a little strange to our eyes. If you remember what I was reading, what happened, it may seem like, well, this is odd. What exactly is happening? What's happening here is Abram hears this promise. He believes God and he's wondering, well, God, how will all this work? How will I know I'll possess the land? How will I know that, that I'll have offspring? What, what is all this banking on? And God answers him in what appears to be a really strange way. God, if you read on in the chapter, God tells him to bring him an assortment of animals, heifers and rams, an assortment of animals. And what does God do when he gets the animals? He cuts them in half. It's really, really strange to us. And when he cuts them in half, he takes these two animals, just like a calf. He cuts the calf in half and he, he lays the calf open on both sides. And he cuts the ram and he lays it open on both sides. And he cuts the other animal and he lays it open on both sides. And so what we have is a, a bloody aisle that is created where on both sides you have dead carcasses laying. We think, what in the world is going on? He puts Abram in the middle. In verse 12 and following, we see that night comes, it falls, Abram goes into a deep sleep. It's not restful. The text says that it's dreadful. And in the sleep, he is given a vision of what will be of his descendants. God says that they're gonna be servants and in slavery for over 400 years, affliction and turmoil. But it ends well because Abram sees that God eventually delivers them and gives them a wealth of possessions. But now here's where it gets a little bit more weird. You have these dead animals opened up, Abram's in the middle, and now there's smoking pots and a fiery torch going between in this bloody aisle of animals. Verse 18 says what's happening. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I will give your offspring the land. And he names the land and the chapter ends. What is happening here in this strange occurrence to our Western eyes is a covenant ceremony. Here, here's, here's basically what is happening. In a covenant, they would, they would slaughter these animals. They would split them in two as they're making a binding contract, a binding covenant between two parties. And this is what God is doing. And, and what would happen in these covenants is that there would be the understanding of if I break this covenant, may I be like these dead animals. 
And so realize what's happening here. These dead animals are split open on all sides and God is standing there making a covenant with Abram. And basically what he's saying is, Abram, how do you know this is gonna come to pass? Hear me clearly. If I break my covenant, may I be like these dead animals. This is the promise of God. We all know that God doesn't break his covenant. And just to fast forward, we'll spend more time on this in weeks to come, but just to fast forward, we see the Lord in the, in the scriptures to come put in a new covenant. Now, this is where I wish I had more time today, but in the new covenant, God says, listen, my law won't be written on tablets of stone anymore. Where will it be written? On people's hearts. And I'm gonna take out hearts of stone and I'm gonna put in hearts of flesh and I'm gonna create a people and they'll be my people and I will be their God and I will work in them through my spirit that they will not want to turn away from me. It's a beautiful covenant community of God's people. Starting right here with Abram, and we see it progress throughout the Bible. How does God promise the new covenant? He used these dead animals on both sides to promise Abram. How does God promise the new covenant? What would that ceremony look like? If you flash forward hundreds of years to the night before Jesus is betrayed, he's instituting the Lord's Supper and he takes the cup in Luke twenty-two twenty, and what does he say? This cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now it's not the blood of rams or goats or other animals. Whose blood is being spilled, guaranteeing, purchasing, redeeming through the new covenant? The very blood of the Son of God. The final sacrifice, the perfect blood, the complete seal for his covenant people. And here's why all this matters. How can you be right with God? Do you believe what Jesus has done for you? Are you trusting that he is your savior and Lord? Are you trusting in him like all of you are trusting in your chair right now? Completely relying that it's gonna keep holding you up. Not holding one bit back. This is the way you can be right with God. And listen, how do you know that your belief will hold up on the final day? How do you know that God won't change his mind and say, well, you know, now I'm gonna pull my righteousness back from you. Here's how you know. Because he made a covenant, not with the blood of goats or rams. He made a covenant with the blood of his own son. And he's not turning back from that. Just like the ceremony with Abram, we see it in the death of Christ. The righteousness you have in Christ is secure, not because you hold on to it, but because God will and he guaranteed it with the cleansing blood of Christ. You can be right with God today if you would believe in Christ. You can have the righteousness of him for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, what glorious news your gospel gives to us.
how pitiful it would be for us to take this book to look at the narratives you've given us, to look at the examples you provide for us and to just simply say, I wanna try to be like them. There is so much more you have for us, a, a, a story of redemption. Thank you for the righteousness that, that you're willing to give out to people like us, even though we have none. Thank you for the blood of Christ that seals our salvation with you, that guarantees it and secures it. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, that you found us in faithless positions and you called us by your grace. You quickened us with your spirit. You gave us new hearts. And when you did, we turned and trusted in you. What a complete work you've done and a complete work of redemption. And we give you praise for that. We want to remember these things. We want to fellowship with you over these wonderful truths in your Lord's Supper. Continue to be with us now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.